Chapter forty two, part six of Leviathan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Geoffrey Edwards. Leviathan by Thomas Hobbes. Chapter forty two, part six of Power Ecclesiastical. But this whole dispute, whether Christ left the jurisdiction to the Pope only, or to other bishops also, if considered out of those places where the Pope has the civil sovereignty, is a contention de lana caprina, for none of them, where they are not sovereigns, has any jurisdiction at all. For jurisdiction is the power of hearing and determining causes between man and man and can belong to none but him that hath the power to prescribe the rules of right and wrong, that is, to make laws, and with the sword of justice, to compel men to obey his decisions, pronounced either by himself, or by the judges he ordaineth thereunto, which none can lawfully do but the civil sovereign. Therefore, when he alleggeth out of the sixth chapter of Luke, that our Saviour called his disciples together, and chose twelve of them, which he named apostles, he proveth that he elected them, all except Matthias, Paul, and Barnabas, and gave them power and command to preach, but not to judge of causes between man and man, for that is a power which he refused to take upon himself, saying, Who made me a judge, or a divider, amongst you? And in another place, My kingdom is not of this world, but he that hath not the power to hear and determine causes between man and man cannot be said to have any jurisdiction at all. And yet this hinders not but that our Saviour gave them power to preach and baptize in all parts of the world, supposing they were not by their own lawful sovereign forbidden. For to our own sovereigns Christ himself and his apostles have in sundry places expressly commanded us in all things to be obedient. The arguments by which he would prove that bishops receive their jurisdiction from the Pope, seeing the Pope in the dominions of other princes hath no jurisdiction himself, are all in vain. Yet because they prove, on the contrary, that all bishops receive jurisdiction, when they have it, from their civil sovereigns, I will not omit the recital of them. The first is from Numbers, chapter 11, where Moses not being able alone to undergo the whole burden of administering the affairs of the people of Israel, God commanded him to choose seventy elders, and took part of the spirit of Moses to put it upon those seventy elders, by which is understood not that God weakened the spirit of Moses, for that had not eased him at all, but that they had all of them their authority from him, wherein he doth truly and ingenuously interpret that place. But seeing Moses had the entire sovereignty in the commonwealth of the Jews, it is manifest that it is thereby signified that they had their authority from the civil sovereign, and therefore that place proveth that bishops in every Christian commonwealth have their authority from the civil sovereign, and from the Pope in his own territories only, and not in the territories of any other state. The second argument is from the nature of monarchy, wherein all authority is in one man, and in others by derivation from him. But the government of the church, he says, is monarchical, 
This also makes for Christian monarchs, for they are really monarchs of their own people, that is, of their own church, for the church is the same thing with a Christian people, whereas the power of the Pope, though he were St. Peter, is neither monarchy, nor have anything of archical, nor cratical, but only of didactical, for God accepteth not a forced, but a willing obedience. The third is from that the see of St. Peter is called by St. Cyprian the head, the source, the root, the sun, from whence the authority of bishops is derived. But by the law of nature, which is a better principle of right and wrong than the word of any doctor that is but a man, the civil sovereign in every commonwealth is the head, the source, the root, and the sun, from which all jurisdiction is derived and therefore the jurisdiction of bishops is derived from the civil sovereign. The fourth is taken from the inequality of their jurisdictions. For if God, saith he, had given it them immediately, he had given as well equality of jurisdiction, as of order. But we see some are bishops but of one town, some of a hundred towns, and some of many whole provinces, which differences were not determined by the command of God, their jurisdiction, therefore, is not of God, but of man, and one has a greater, another a less, as it pleaseth the prince of the church. Which argument, if he had proved before that the Pope had had a universal jurisdiction over all Christians, had been for his purpose. But seeing that hath not been proved, and that it is notoriously known the large jurisdiction of the Pope was given him by those that had it, that is, by the emperors of Rome, for the patriarch of Constantinople, upon the same title, namely, of being bishop of the capital city of the empire, and seat of the emperor, claimed to be equal to him, it followeth that all other bishops have their jurisdiction from the sovereigns of the place wherein they exercise the same. And as for that cause, they have not their authority de jure divino, so neither hath the pope his de jure divino, except only where he is also the civil sovereign. His fifth argument is this. If bishops have their jurisdiction immediately from God, the Pope could not take it from them, for he can do nothing contrary to God's ordination. And this consequence is good and well proved. But, saith he, the Pope can do this, and has done it. This also is granted, so he do it in his own dominions, or in dominions of any other prince that hath given him that power, but not universally, in right of the Popedom, for that power belongeth to every Christian sovereign, within the bounds of his own empire, and is inseparable from the sovereignty. Before the people of Israel had, by the commandment of God to Samuel, set over themselves a king, after the manner of other nations, the high priest had the civil government, and none but he could make nor depose an inferior priest. But that power was afterwards in the king, as may be proved by the same argument of Bellarmine. For if the priest, be he the high priest or any other, had his jurisdiction immediately from God, then the king could not take it from him, for he could do nothing contrary to God's ordinance. But it is certain that King Solomon deprived Abiathar, the high priest of his office. First Kings chapter 2, verses 26-27, and placed Zadok in his room. Ibid chapter 2, verse 35. Kings, therefore, may in the like manner ordain and deprive bishops, as they shall think fit, for the well-governing of their subjects. 
His sixth argument is this. If bishops have their jurisdiction de jure divino, that is, immediately from God, they that maintain it should bring some word of God to prove it, but they can bring none. The argument is good. I have therefore nothing to say against it, but it is an argument no less good to prove the Pope himself to have no jurisdiction in the dominion of any other prince. Lastly, he bringeth for argument the testimony of two popes, Innocent and Leo, and I doubt not, but he might have alleged, with as good reason, the testimonies of all the popes, almost since St. Peter, for considering the love of power naturally implanted in mankind, whosoever were made pope, he would be tempted to uphold the same opinion. Nevertheless, they should therein but do as Innocent and Leo did, bear witness of themselves, and therefore their witness should not be good. In the fifth book he hath four conclusions. The first is that the Pope is not lord of all the world. The second, that the Pope is not lord of all the Christian world. The third, that the Pope, without his own territory, has not any temporal jurisdiction directly. These three conclusions are easily granted. The fourth is that the Pope has, in the dominions of other princes, the supreme temporal power indirectly, which is denied unless he mean by indirectly that he has gotten it by indirect means. Then is that also granted. But I understand that when he saith he hath it indirectly, he means that such temporal jurisdiction belongeth to him of right, but that this right is but a consequence of his pastoral authority, the which he could not exercise, unless he have the other with it, and therefore to the pastoral power, which he calls spiritual, the supreme power civil is necessarily annexed, and that thereby he hath a right to change kingdoms, giving them to one, and taking them from another, when he shall think it conduces to the salvation of souls. Before I come to consider the arguments by which he would prove this doctrine, it will not be amiss to lay open the consequences of it, that princes and states that have the civil sovereignty in their several commonwealths may bethink themselves whether it be convenient for them, and conducing to the good of their subjects, of whom they are to give an account at the day of judgment, to admit the same. When it is said the Pope hath not, in the territories of other states, the supreme civil power directly, we are to understand he doth not challenge it, as other civil sovereigns do from the original submission thereto of those that are to be governed. For it is evident, and has already been sufficiently in this treatise demonstrated, that the right of all sovereigns is derived originally from the consent of every one of those that are to be governed. Whether they that choose him do it for it for their common defense, against an enemy, as when they agree amongst themselves to appoint a man or an assembly of men to protect them, or whether they do it to save their lives, by submission to a conquering enemy. The Pope, therefore, when he disclaimeth the supreme civil power over other states directly, denieth no more but that his right cometh to him by that way. He ceaseth not for all that to claim it another way, and that is, without the consent of them that are to be governed, by a right given him by God, which he calleth indirectly in his assumption to the papacy. But by what way soever he pretend, the power is the same, and he may, if it be granted to be his right, depose princes and states, as often as it is for the salvation of souls, that is, as often as he will, for he claimeth also the sole power to judge whether it be to the salvation of men's souls or not. And this is the doctrine, 
not only that Bellarmine here, and many other doctors teach in their sermons and books, but also that some councils have decreed, and the popes have accordingly, when the occasion hath served them, put in practice. For the fourth council of Lateran, held under Pope Innocent the Third, in the third chapter, De Herectasis, hath this canon, If a king, at the pope's admonition, do not purge his kingdom of heretics, and being excommunicate for the same, make not satisfaction within a year, his subjects are absolved of their obedience. And the practice hereof hath been seen on diverse occasions, as in the deposing of Childeric, king of France, in the translation of the Roman Empire to Charlemagne, in the oppression of John, king of England, in transferring the kingdom of Navarre, and of late years in the league against Henry the Third of France, and in many more occurrences. I think there be few princes that consider not this as unjust and inconvenient, but I wish they would all resolve to be kings or subjects. Men cannot serve two masters. They ought therefore to ease them, either by holding the reins of government wholly in their own hands, or by wholly delivering them into the hands of the Pope, that such men as are willing to be obedient may be protected in their obedience. For this distinction of temporal and spiritual power is but words. Power is as really divided, and as dangerously to all purposes, by sharing with another indirect power, as with a direct one. But to come now to his arguments. The first is this. The civil power is subject to the spiritual. Therefore he that hath the supreme power spiritual hath right to command temporal princes, and dispose of their temporals in order to the spiritual. As for the distinction of temporal and spiritual, let us consider in what sense it may be said intelligibly that the temporal or civil power is subject to the spiritual. There be but two ways that those words can be made sense. For when we say one power is subject to another, the meaning either is that he which hath the one is subject to him that hath the other, or that the one power is to the other as the means to the end. For we cannot understand that one power hath power over another power, or that one power can have right or command over another. For subjection, command, right, and power are accidents, not of powers, but of persons. One power may be subordinate to another, as the art of a saddler to the art of a rider. If, then, it be granted that the civil government be ordained as a means to bring us to a spiritual felicity, Yet it does not follow that if a king have the civil power, and the pope the spiritual, that therefore the king is bound to obey the pope, more than every saddler is bound to obey every rider. Therefore, as from subordination of an art cannot be inferred the subjection of the professor, so from the subordination of a government cannot be inferred the subjection of the governor. When, therefore, he saith the civil power is subject to the spiritual, his meaning is that the civil sovereign is subject to the spiritual sovereign. And the argument stands thus, the civil sovereign is subject to the spiritual. Therefore the spiritual prince may command temporal princes, where the conclusion is the same with the antecedent he should have proved. But to prove it, he alleggeth first this reason, kings and popes, clergy and laity, make but one commonwealth, that is to say, but one church, and in all bodies the members depend one upon another, but things spiritual depend not of things temporal therefore temporal depend on spiritual, and therefore are subject to them. In which argumentation there be two gross errors. One is that all Christian kings, 
popes, clergy, and all other Christian men make but one commonwealth, for it is evident that France is one commonwealth, Spain another, and Venice a third, etc. And these consist of Christians, and therefore also are several bodies of Christians, that is to say, several churches, and their several sovereigns represent them, whereby they are capable of commanding and obeying, of doing and suffering, as a natural man, which no general or universal church is, till it have a representant, which it hath not on earth. For if it had, there is no doubt but that all Christendom were one commonwealth, whose sovereign were that representant, both in things spiritual and temporal, and the Pope, to make himself this representant, wanteth three things that our Saviour hath not given him, to command, and to judge, and to punish, otherwise then, by excommunication, to run from those that will not learn of him. For though the Pope were Christ's only vicar, yet he cannot exercise his government till our Saviour's second coming. And then also it is not the Pope, but St. Peter himself, with the other apostles, that are to be judges of the world. The other error in this, his first argument, is that he says, the members of every commonwealth, as of a natural body, depend one of another. It is true they cohere together, but they depend only on the sovereign, which is the soul of the commonwealth, which failing, the commonwealth is dissolved into a civil war, no one man so much as cohering to another, for want of a common dependence on a known sovereign, just as the members of the natural body dissolve into earth, for want of a soul to hold them together. Therefore there is nothing in this similitude, from whence to infer a dependence of the laity on the clergy, or of the temporal officers on the spiritual but of both on the civil sovereign, which ought indeed to direct his civil commands to the salvation of souls, but is not therefore subject to any but God himself. And thus you see the laboured fallacy of the first argument, to deceive such men as distinguished not between the subordination of actions in the way to the end, and the subjection of persons, one to another, in the administration of the means. For to every end the means are determined by nature, or by God himself supernaturally but the power to make men use the means is in every nation resigned, by the law of nature, which forbiddeth men to violate their faith given to the civil sovereign. His second argument is this. Every commonwealth, because it is supposed to be perfect and sufficient in itself, may command any other commonwealth not subject to it, and force it to change the administration of the government, nay, depose the prince, and set another in his room, if it cannot otherwise defend itself against the injuries he goes about to do them, much more may a spiritual commonwealth command a temporal one to change the administration of their government, and may depose princes, and institute others, when they cannot otherwise defend the spiritual good. That a commonwealth, to defend itself against injuries, may lawfully do all that he hath here said is very true, and hath already in that which hath gone before been sufficiently demonstrated. And if it were also true, that there is now in this world a spiritual commonwealth, distinct from a civil commonwealth, then might the prince thereof, upon injury done him, or upon want of caution that injury be not done him in time to come, repair and secure himself by war, which is, in some, deposing, killing, or subduing, or doing any act of hostility. But by the same reason, it would be no less lawful for a civil sovereign, upon the like injuries done, or feared, to make war upon the spiritual sovereign, which I believe is more than Cardinal Bellarmine would have inferred from his own proposition. But spiritual commonwealth there is none in this world, for it is the same thing with the kingdom of Christ, which he himself saith is not of this world, but shall be in the next world, 
at the resurrection, when they that have lived justly, and believed that he was the Christ, shall, though they died natural bodies, rise spiritual bodies, and then it is that our Saviour shall judge the world, and conquer his adversaries, and make a spiritual commonwealth. In the meantime, seeing there are no men on earth whose bodies are spiritual, there can be no spiritual commonwealth amongst men that are yet in the flesh, unless we call preachers that have commissioned to teach and prepare men for their reception into the kingdom of Christ at the resurrection a commonwealth, which I have proved already to be none. The third argument is this. It is not lawful for Christians to tolerate an infidel or heretical king, in case he endeavor to draw them to his heresy or infidelity. But to judge whether a king draw his subjects to heresy or not, belongeth to the Pope. Therefore hath the Pope right to determine whether the prince be to be deposed or not deposed. To this are I answer that both these assertions false. For Christians, or men of what religion soever, if they tolerate not their king, whatsoever law he maketh, though it be concerning religion, do violate their faith, contrary to the divine law, both natural and positive. Nor is there any judge of heresy amongst subjects but their own civil sovereign, for heresy is nothing else but a private opinion, obstinately maintained, contrary to the opinion which the public person, that is to say, the representant of the commonwealth, hath commanded to be taught, by which it is manifest that an opinion publicly appointed to be taught cannot be heresy, nor the sovereign princes that authorize them heretics. For heretics are none but private men that stubbornly defend some doctrine prohibited by their lawful sovereigns. But to prove that Christians are not to tolerate infidel or heretical kings, he alleggeth a place in Deuteronomy, where God forbiddeth the Jews, when they shall set a king over themselves, to choose a stranger. Deuteronomy chapter 17. And from thence inferreth that it is unlawful for a Christian to choose a king that is not a Christian. And it is true that he that is a Christian, that is, he that hath already obliged himself to receive our Saviour, when he shall come, for his king, shall tempt God too much in choosing for king in this world one that he knoweth will endeavour, both by terror and persuasion, to make him violate his faith. But, it is, saith he, the same danger to choose one that is not a Christian for king, and not to depose him when he is chosen. To this I say, the question is not of the danger of not deposing, but of the justice of deposing him. To choose him may in some cases be unjust, but to depose him when he is chosen is in no case just, for it is always violation of faith, and consequently against the law of nature, which is the eternal law of God. Nor do we read that any such doctrine was accounted Christian in the time of the apostles, nor in the time of the Roman emperors, till the popes had the civil sovereignty of Rome. But to this he hath replied that the Christians of old deposed not Nero, nor Diocletian, nor Julian, nor Valens, and Arian, for this cause only, that they wanted temporal forces. Perhaps so, but did our Saviour, who for calling for might have had twelve legions of immortal, invulnerable angels to assist him, want forces to depose Caesar, or at least Pilate, that unjustly, without finding fault in him, delivered him to the Jews to be crucified? Or if the apostles wanted temporal forces to depose Nero, was it therefore necessary for them in their epistles to the new-made Christians to teach them, as they did, to obey the powers constituted over them, whereof Nero in that time was one, and that they ought to obey them, not for fear of their wrath, but for conscience' sake? Shall we say they did not only obey, but also teach what they meant not, for want of strength? It is not therefore for want of strength, 
but for conscience sake that christians are to tolerate their heathen princes or princes for i cannot call any one whose doctrine is the public doctrine a heretic that authorizes the teaching of an heir and whereas for the temporal power of the pope he alleges further that st paul appointed judges under the heathen princes of those times such as were not ordained by those princes first corinthians chapter six it is not true for st paul does but advise them to take some of their brethren to compound their differences as arbitrators rather than to go to law one with another before the heathen judges which is a wholesome precept and full of charity fit to be practised also in the best christian commonwealths and for the danger that may arise to religion by the subject's tolerating of a heathen or an erring prince it is a point of which a subject is no competent judge or if he be the pope's temporal subjects may judge also of the pope's doctrine for every christian prince as i have formerly proved is no less supreme pastor of his own subjects than the pope of his the fourth argument is taken from the baptism of kings wherein that they may be made christians they submit their sceptres to christ and promise to keep and defend the christian faith this is true for christian kings are no more but christ's subjects but they may for all that be the pope's fellows for they are supreme pastors of their own subjects and the pope is no more but king and pastor even in rome itself the fifth argument is drawn from the words spoken by our saviour feed my sheep by which was given all power necessary for a pastor as the power to chase away wolves such as are heretics the power to shut up rams if they be mad or push at the other sheep with their horns such as are evil though christian kings and power to give the flock convenient food from whence he inferreth that st peter had these three powers given him by christ to which i answer that the last of these powers is no more than the power or rather command to teach for the first which is to chase away wolves that is heretics the place he quoteth is beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravening wolves matthew chapter seven verse fifteen but neither are heretics false prophets or at all prophets nor admitting heretics for the wolves there meant were the apostles commanded to kill them or if they were kings to depose them but to beware of fly and avoid them nor was it to st peter nor to any of the apostles but to the multitude of the jews that followed him into the mountain men for the most part not yet converted that he gave this counsel to beware of false prophets which therefore if it confer a power of chasing away kings was given not only to private men but to men that were not at all christians and as to the power of separating and shutting up furious rams by which he meaneth christian kings that refused to submit themselves to the roman pastor our saviour refused to take upon him that power in this world himself but advised to let the corn and tares grow up together till the day of judgment much less did he give it to st peter or can st peter give it to the popes st peter and all other pastors are bidden to esteem those christians that disobey the church that is that disobey the christian sovereign as heathen men and as publicans seeing then men challenge to the pope no authority over heathen princes they ought to challenge none over those that are to be esteemed as heathen but from the power to teach only he inferreth also a coercive power in the pope over kings the pastor saith he must give his flock convenient food therefore food 
therefore the pope may and ought to compel kings to do their duty out of which it followeth that the pope as pastor of christian men is king of kings which all christian kings ought indeed either to confess or else they ought to take upon themselves the supreme pastoral charge every one in his own dominion his sixth and last argument is from examples to which i answer first that examples prove nothing secondly that the examples he alleggeth make not so much as a probability of right the fact of jehoiada in killing athaliah second kings chapter eleven was either by the authority of king joash or it was a horrible crime in the high priest which ever after the election of king saul was a mere subject the fact of st ambrose in excommunicating theodosius the emperor if it were true he did so was a capital crime and for the popes gregory the first gregory the second zachary and leo the third their judgments are void as given in their own cause and the acts done by them conformably to this doctrine are the greatest crimes especially that of zachary they are incident to human nature and thus much of power ecclesiastical wherein i had been more brief forbearing to examine these arguments of bellarmine if they had been his as a private man and not as the champion of the papacy against all other christian princes and states End of chapter 42, part 6 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards